All right, <clears throat> lecture eight. Uh, the fight against liberalism, round two. Ding ding. Um, that's that's the the bell before the boxers start fighting. In this case, it's the um, it's the battle over foreign missions. Uh, but before moving to that, which is really the final chapter of conservatives in the PCUSA. Um, that plays out between 1932 and 1936. And the culmination of that is the formation of the OPC. In 1936, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's useful to take stock of where conservatives are in the PCUSA in 1930. And it's a hard situation to know what to do if you're a conservative. Um, it's possible for you to continue to minister in your pulpits. There's no pressure there necessarily. It's possible to still work at Westminster Seminary and train ministers for the PCUSA. There's precedent for this. This is what liberals at Union Seminary would have been doing, training ministers for the PCUSA, even though Union Seminary in New York City was not an official Presbyterian um, institution. Um, <clears throat> but there is this element of, as I mentioned at the end of the last lecture, that Machen and conservatives, Machen being the foremost conservative, being squeaky wheels. And do you finally need to silence that squeaky wheel or not? Um, it would have been possible for Machen to continue to object to liberalism in the church, but he had a much reduced platform in moving from Princeton to Westminster, <clears throat> even though his notoriety was increasing as, as that happened. Um, so Machen writes a, a, a piece for the um, Christian Reformed Church, actually, the Banner magazine in 1930 about the future for Calvinism in the PCUSA. Um, and he writes this, among other things, the future of Calvinism within the PCUSA is certainly, from the point of view of human probabilities, exceedingly dark. The creed of the church remains indeed Calvinistic, being the Westminster Confession of Faith, and every candidate for the ministry or eldership is required to subscribe solemnly to that creed. But both creed and creed subscription are constantly interpreted to mean practically nothing at all. Excuse me. The, the descent of what was formerly a great church to its present lamentable condition has been for the most part gradual, since here as elsewhere the destructive forces have been content to labor in the dark. At the, at the most, a few landmarks may be distinguished on the downward path. He mentions again the plan of organic union, the Fosdick sermon, the ordination of people who wouldn't affirm the virgin birth, he mentions again the Auburn affirmation and the general indifference of the boards and agencies. So <clears throat> Machen is very much concerned about wh where the, the church is going to go. It's, it's interesting or curious in, in some ways that he thinks the, um, that there may be forces at work in the church that were responsible for this. And that's certainly true in, in effect, but if the church is also trying to follow the general trend of this wider society, 
and trying to be on the, the right side of changing the world or changing the church, it w may not be simply a, a small little cabal of church officers or a small little number of liberal professors at seminaries who are responsible for this. It could be actually just the church ha have being such a part of American society or Amer identifying as much as it did with America that the church drifted along this path. <clears throat> so it's, it's really a difficult situation in which conservatives find themselves in 1930 after the loss of Princeton, the formation of Westminster. But, 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 then out of the blue comes a report on foreign missions, particularly in China. It's called Rethinking Missions, or the Layman's Committee. <clears throat> this was a seven-volume report studying world missions with support from the Institute for Social and Religious Research and seven major denominational boards, including the Presbyterian Church. It was a 15-member commission that surveyed missions in beyond China, India, Burma, Jap Japan, and China. Its editor was William Ernest Hocking, the Harvard professor of a Harvard professor of philosophy, um, and he was the one who wrote the report. It's sometimes referred to as the Hocking report. When was the last time a professor of philosophy wrote a a report for? A church body, even if it was a seven-member denom seven den denominational committee. The president, in addition to Hawking, the president of the University of Chicago was the vice president of this commission. The president of Brown University was also one of the members of the committee. So again, this was elite American society. This was the Protestant establishment that was behind this report. It received major funding from the Rockefeller, Rockefeller wealth. So th this was a really big, um, a big deal in a way, coming from these bastions of, of uh, elite society in the United States. Um, and here is some of their finding. <clears throat> um, what they found was that missions really needed to change because of the situation in the world and the relationship of Christianity to other religions. Part of the report said, in respect to its theology and ethics, Christianity has many doctrines in common with other religions, yet no other religion has the same group of doctrines. It would be difficult to point out any one general principle which could surely be found nowhere else, but there is no need. It is a humiliating mistake for Christianity to contest priority or uniqueness in regard to these general ideas. As we were saying, there is no, there is no property here. What is true belongs in its nature to the human mind everywhere. From this treasury of thought, however, so Christianity shares all these ideas in common with all other beliefs all other people because of these general truths that liberal Protestants think that they can derive from Christianity. But this treasury of thought, from this Christianity proffers a selection which is unique. Unique, excuse me. The principle of selection is its own peculiar character. Its individuality lies in the way in which 
It assembles and proportions these truths and lends to them clarity, certainty, exemplification, and therefore power. So Christianity gives a unique spin to all these general ideas, and that's its distinctness, as it were. But the aim of missions, then, is basically to cooperate with other religions in the world, to make the world a better place. The way they do that is the language of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God expanding around the world, and this is what missionaries are called to do. There's explicit parts of the report, which is available online, you can download it as a PDF, which say that the old motive for missions of saving people from hell and, and, and judgment is gone. We don't believe in that anymore. That's not the work of missions. The work of missions is one of cooperation and lifting other boats up to the Western standard. It's a, another amazing expression of uh, optimism and confidence by these, by these Protestants who are, who are trying to figure out the place of Christianity in the world as the West grows in its influence, especially into parts of Asia. So what was the PCUSA's reaction to this? Um, basically, they were sort of hamana, hamana, hamana. They didn't know how to respond. Some of them didn't really see a problem. Some of them who did see a problem tried to soft pedal what the problem was. Machen was very critical of the responses. Conservatives were very alarmed by this report, and they became even more alarmed when Pearl Buck who was a daughter of a Presbyterian missionary, a Southern Presbyterian. She had since left the mission field, I think I mentioned in a previous lecture. She had won a Pulitzer Prize in 1932 for her novel, The Good Earth, about Chinese people. She welcomed the report. She sung its praises. She thought this was finally a breath of fresh air because the old motive for missions really was gone. She wrote a famous article for Harper's Magazine about in commending the report. She also wrote favorably about the report in Christian Century Magazine, which was the mainstream magazine of liberal Protestantism. But Machen was, was very much alarmed. But it's also interesting to see that this report came out of the blue. Again, conservatives didn't instigate this part of the controversy. This part of the controversy just came from the normal operations of the mainline churches. And they, they couldn't see that anybody would object. It's so parallel to any number of co uh, controversies going on today that people at public schools or school um, <clears throat> unions don't see that parents might object to certain things. They just sort of thinking, no, we've got this. We know what the truth is. Oh, you mean people disagree? Can you believe it? Anyway, that's what happened. Conservatives were alarmed. Machen wrote against it. Uh, he drafted an overture to ask for reforms of the, the for at, to ask for the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions to respond correctly to it. And at the overture presented to the Presbytery of New Brunswick in 1933, he actually had a showdown, as it were, with Robert Speer. Robert Speer was the um, the president or secretary. I guess it's secretary of that board of foreign missions, well-regarded figure in mainline Protestantism, very popular, <clears throat> I guess, charismatic figure. Um, and he was sort of Mr. Foreign Missions 
for the first third of the, of the 20th century in Protestant, not just Presbyterian, but Protestant circles, a really big deal. So to get him to show up was quite something, but basically he didn't really engage with Machen's charges against the Board of Foreign Missions. The Board of Foreign Missions was only implicated in the report. They weren't responsible for it. They had representatives on the committee. So again, they were implicated, but it wasn't, you could sort of do a bob and weave, a duck and jive, and sort of say, no, we weren't truly responsible for this. Speer also thought it was unfair for Machen to, to read the report in as um, critically, critical a way as he did, and to see the worst in it, especially, and to attribute that to the Board of Missions, rather than for the Missions Committee to reassure people that, no, we still believe in the gospel we, pro we proclaim and confess uh, in the Bible and, and, and the confession of faith. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a frustrating time. The Presbytery of Philadelphia, even though that the, the overture that Machen wrote uh, failed at the Presbytery of New Brunswick, the Presbytery of Philadelphia picks it up and does send it to uh, the General Assembly of 1933. Uh, and there you actually have some debate over the overture because I, the committee to which it went, there was a majority report and a minority report. Once you get that on the floor, it's possible perhaps to get people to change their minds even though it was only two out of maybe 15 on the, the study committee that issued the minority report, but still maybe there was a possibility that on the floor the minority report could prevail. It did not, though. <clears throat> and that led in 1933 to the founding of the Presbyterian, sorry, the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions. And this was the line in the sand <clears throat> um, to which, against which, over which Machen could not cross. This really was the, the last straw for Machen because there was overwhelming conviction from the outset that once the independent board was started, that Machen had broken the law of the church. Um, Lewis Mudge, who was the stated clerk of the General Assembly, said um, that the independent board subverted Presbyterian law by undertaking administrative functions within the church without official authorization. <clears throat> and Mudge counseled the Baltimore Presbytery to inform Westminster Seminary, gradu Seminary graduates that they would not be licensed or ordained unless they gave a written pledge that they would support the official agencies of the church as part of their pledge of loyalty. So you see the beginning of not only a ruling that this is unlawful, but you'd also see the beginning of demand for loyalty pledges, especially for graduates of Westminster, but also for others. Which if you think about liberalism, liberalism uh, featuring tolerance and broad-mindedness, you see some tension here between that posture and this of requiring pledges of loyalty to the church and its agencies. Um, the New Brunswick Presbytery also adopted a resolution that all ministerial candidates be examined on their willingness to support 
reg the regularly authorized boards and agencies of the Presbyterian Church USA, particularly the Board of Foreign Missions. So again, here's a specific presbytery which is taking its own initiative to make sure that it's anyone it ordains or license, licenses will be uh, will pledge their support to the the Board of Foreign Missions. Again, keep in mind that there was reluctance on the part of the Presbyterian of New, of New York to require ministers to affirm the virgin birth. And people backed away from requiring the Presbyterian of New York to require people to affirm the ministers to affirm the virgin birth. Now the church, only 10 years later, is requiring people to pledge their support for the boards of the church, even though those people think that there's something wrong with those boards in the way that they're conducting their affairs. Also, in the fall of 1933, the moderator of the General Assembly in the, in the PCUSA, unlike, unlike the uh, OPC, where the moderatorship generally begins and ends with the meeting of the General Assembly, although sometimes business does carry over, you are generally moderator for the year. So the, the moderator for 1933, John McDowell, declared that the PCUSA was a constitutional church and suggested that the new board had violated church law. In May of 1934, McDowell and other members of the PCUSA's administrative committee met with Machen and they met with him to inform him that he had either violated his ordination and membership vows or had had uh, done both. And so Machen was basically informed in 1933 and 1934 by various officials in the church or various judicatories in the church that he had violated church law. <clears throat> um, and this led then to the General Assembly of 1934 issuing a mandate, the mandate of 1934, which required all the members of the independent board to resign. And one of the, one of the responses to that from Machen was, wait a minute, you've tried us before we've even had a trial. You've, you've declared us guilty of church, violating church law before you've even proven it. Um, it is also worth keeping in mind that there were independent uh, missionary agencies operating within the bounds, as it were, of the Presbyterian Church. Um, when the, the PCUSA merged with the Welsh Calvinistic Church, which was basically the Presbyterian Church coming out of Wales, the Welsh Calvinistic Church held on to its own missions agency, and they retained their own autonomy until 1920. So there was some precedent for having independent missions agency, not to mention that American Protestantism was littered with parachurch agencies, many of which Presbyterians would have supported in all sorts of ways, including agencies like Union Seminary and Westminster Seminary. Nobody seemed to think that these were institutions that somehow violated Presbyterian law or somehow violated uh, Presbyterian monopoly on these, um, these endeavors. 
So Machen, this this involves Machen in, in a major controversy against this mandate of 1934, uh, and he he basically argues that this is a violation of so many aspects of Protestantism from basic rules of Protestant principles, like you cannot have an authoritative church bind the consciences of members to treating church benevolences, church offerings, as if they're a tax required of people to give. And also, he, he said it uh, violated constitutional provisions of the PCUSA's law, which, re- which required someone to be tried. You have to go to trial to prove that they have violated the law of the church. And it was in the midst of this controversy that William Childs Robinson, a um, professor of New Testament, relatively conservative one at Columbia Seminary in then South Carolina, um, I think it eventually moved to Georgia and became Decatur Theological Seminary, I believe. But he was observing this, and he was stunned that the Presbyterian Church would adopt the line that it did because it seemed very similar to what Bart was facing in Europe from the German churches. Um, He writes, with a much more vague and less adequate understanding of what the Word of God is, Karl Barth is indeed challenging the German church with the same issue that the Machen case has raised in the USA church. Is the voice of the church the ultimate, or is it only penultimate with the word of God ultimate? Is not the word of God above the church judging her? That was the issue that Barth raised for the German church, and Robinson believed that that was the issue that Machen was raising for the Presbyterian Church USA. So eventually, Machen has to go to trial, the Presbyterian of New Brunswick. Remember the Presbytery that the, that the colonial Presbyterian Church formed as a place for the revivalists who so often violated Presbyterial boundaries. They created this Presbytery so that those revivalists could conduct their work. That's the same Presbytery that's bringing Machen to trial. The first matter of the trial, though, was one of jurisdiction. Machen had transferred his membership from the Presbytery of New Brunswick to the Presbytery of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a much more conservative Presbytery, and it's not necessarily clear that Philadelphia would have brought Machen to trial. So, or if they had, whether they would have convicted him, whether they would have had the votes. But the way they got around this was to say that Machen had not actually transferred. This isn't a matter of interpretation. This was a matter of a dismission slip that wasn't sent properly between clerks of presbyteries. So they could get him on that technical ground that he was still under the jurisdiction of the Presbytery of New Brunswick. Then there were questions about commission members, commission members who had signed the Auburn Affirmation. Machen and other conservatives believed that they had missed a real uh, opportunity when members of the Presbyterian Church, officers, ministers, had put their names to the Auburn Affirmation. They believed that those were actual chargeable offenses in signing the Auburn Affirmation, but nobody brought any charges. 
So that doesn't mean they let it go and they believe that having signers of the Auburn affirmation on the Judicial Commission would, was prejudicial and raised serious questions about the integrity of the commission. <clears throat> but that, that didn't work either. The commission ruled that those objections were out of order. Um, and eventually it brought, uh, they brought against Machen six charges, all of them having to do with measures, matters of disloyalty and um, uh, not submitting sufficiently to the church. Um, <clears throat> here, um, here is the verdict, which also basically outlines the charges that were brought against him. So it's kind of a spoiler alert. They did convict him of, of the charges. <clears throat> the commission concluded the testimony showed, one, that Machen had refused to concur in the decision of the General Assembly of 1933, two, that he with others had organized the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, that said board had widely circulated, circular, circularized the church, the officers and members thereof, and had asked for funds in support of the activities of the Independent Board, thereby engaging in active opposition and open competition with an established agency of the General Assembly. It's something that Westminster had already done in relation to Princeton. Three, that Machen had refused to obey an order from the General Assembly of 1934 to withdraw from the membership in said independent board, that by all of said acts, number four, the defendant has been guilty of conduct contrary to the government and discipline of the church, unfaithful in maintaining the peace of the church, and has been insubordinate to the lawfully constituted authorities of the church and has violated his ordination vows, has shown contempt of and rebellion against his superiors in the church, and has been guilty of a breach of his lawful promises. <clears throat> so that is um, the verdict against Machen. And... Um, Machen has a very good explanation about why he continued to fight. And believe it or not, it was not a question of <clears throat> his temperament, although I'd say he probably was of a person who um, didn't mind fighting, had a kind of courage to fight and maybe enjoyed a good back and forth. But he also believed it was required of him that as a minister of the church, he should fight. <clears throat> so he, he, he wrote this as part of his statement to the Presbytery of New Brunswick to explain his, um, his continued opposition. <clears throat> Suppose a minister obtains his ordination by promising to support the boards and agencies as he is required to do by the plain intent of the mandate of 1934. Suppose he later becomes convinced that the boards and agencies are unfaithful to their trust. Let us take an extreme case. Let us suppose that he has become convinced that those in charge of the boards and agencies are guilty of actual embezzlement. That case, of course, is entirely hypothetical, but an extreme case does illustrate plainly the principle that is involved. 
Let us insist upon putting that extreme case. Here is a minister who has promised that he will, as long as he remains a minister in the Presbyterian Church, support the boards and agencies as they are established by successive general assemblies. Yet he has become convinced that those boards and agencies are positively dishonest, even with a kind of dishonesty that is contrary to the criminal laws of the land. What course of action is open to such a minister? He is convinced that the boards and agencies are dishonest. The General Assembly is convinced that they are honest. What shall he do? In accordance with this action of the General Assembly, in accordance with the plain intent of the addition to the manual of the Presbytery of New Brunswick, only two courses of action are open. In the first place, he may continue to support the boards and agencies which he holds to be dishonest. That course of action would probably involve him in dishonesty. An honest man cannot possibly recommend to people that they should give to agencies which he holds to be dishonest. In the second place, a minister who is in such a quandary may withdraw from the Presbyterian Church in the USA. That plainly means an evasion of the solemn responsibility which he has as a minister. And this is the key point where Machen says, I really wonder whether those who advocate this action of the General Assembly have ever thought this thing through. Do they really mean to tell us that just because a majority in the General Assembly has made a mistake one year and is placed in charge of the missionary funds of the church, men who are dishonest, therefore a minister should withdraw from the church and allow that dishonesty to go on. I say that such conduct is an evasion of a solemn responsibility. No, it is the duty of a minister in such a situation to remain in the church and to seek by every means in his power to bring about a change in that policy of the General Assembly, which he regards as involving dishonesty. Meanwhile, and this should be particularly observed, he cannot for any consideration, whatever, give a penny to what he regards, rightly or wrongly, to be a dishonest agency. And still less can he recommend to any other persons the support of such an agency. Machen goes on to say he's well aware that there's no embezzlement going on in the Board of Foreign Missions, but he is illustrating this point, that the, the requirement for loyalty and pledges of loyalty to the boards and agencies of the church is a breach of the very vows that ministers subscribe when they, are, when they vow to maintain the peace and the purity of the church. How can they maintain the purity of the church if they are denied the capacity to evaluate whether the church is engaged in actions that are worthy of the purity of the church. So these are reasons for Machen's continuing to fight. This is also the reason why Machen is convicted, suspended from the ministry. That, minute, that verdict from the Presbytery of New Brunswick is upheld, and it goes to the General Assembly of 1936, where it's upheld and from that point, Machen helps to found the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, June 11th, 1936, thus bringing to an end the Presbyterian controversy that had started in 1920. It took him 16 years to complete that struggle. It's an amazing thing, I think, to think about <clears throat> how long that struggle went on, that if Machen was really eager to leave the Presbyterian Church, he could have well left it long before then, but he really did continue on a struggle that um, has 
people evaluate in different ways. So I'll, I'll, I'll conclude with this evaluation from Brad Longfield, who is a, um, I think he has been ordained. He's a, he's a dean, academic dean at Dubuque Theological Seminary, a, a PCUSA institution in Iowa, who was sympathetic to Machen, wrote this book, The Presbyterian Controversy, Fundamentalist Modernists and Moderates. <clears throat> I think uh, Dr. Longfield would identify himself as a kind of moderate, um, not a liberal. And so his evaluation of this trial may be, uh, and the verdict may be useful. <clears throat> Though Machen's opponents were no doubt relieved to see him exit the church, his departure was a loss to the fellowship. Early on, Machen saw the pervasive power of secular ideas and the need to present a scholarly defense of Christianity in the face of secularism. By the 1930s, even Coffin, Henry Sloan Coffin, was worried about the rising secularism of the culture, though he never charged liberal theology with complicity in the trend. Clearly, Machen was correct in insisting that the church could not truly prosper if it abandoned the intellectual realm to the exponents of a naturalistic worldview. But by leaving the Presbyterian church, and separating himself from the vast majority of Presbyterians who accepted a supernatural gospel, Machen severely limited his opportunities to influence church and culture. Now, it's curious that Longfield would say Machen separated himself. Some would say he had the separation imposed on him. But it's also curious that he writes here, limited his op opportunities to influence the church and culture. Clearly, Machen lost an ability to influence the PCUSA, but did he really lose influence, lose influence in the culture? Did the Presbyterian church have influence in the culture, or did the culture have influence in the Presbyterian church? It's not clear how much influence the Presbyterian church really was exerting on, the, the, on American culture, though it was floating along with it and therefore in the mainstream, and therefore enjoying access to various institutions of power and influence. But whether there was any kind of Christian or Presbyterian influence in that uh, relationship is, is not at all clear. Which again raises the issue of negative world, positive world, neutral world, and maybe the negative world was far more evident to people like Machen well before 2014 than, um, than some people would allege about evangelicalism today. So I'll stop there for this particular lecture.